Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Over uh, a number of years ago, when I was in Montreal and I was broadcasting this program from uh, AM 940, which was the chorus radio station in Montreal at the time, I got to uh, know a young man who emigrated to Canada from Mexico, and he came to this country following all the steps, all the requirements the Canadian government decided uh, had to be met. He followed them all, every single one. Became a Canadian citizen, a very proud Canadian citizen, and he and I talked about Canadian issues, global issues on a regular basis. We're both political junkies, and Camillo, it's good to talk to you again. It's been a long time. Glad to talk to you again, Roy. Yeah. Uh, You've been in Canada for how long now? It is 15 years. Wow. And when you... Time flies by. When you came to Canada... Um, you knew there were rules in place. You also knew there were options to bend those rules, and we'll talk about that in a minute. There was a website that was aimed at people in Latin America that we'll, I'll ask you about in a moment. But you came to Canada, and you followed each and every rule, and uh, that included getting an immigration lawyer and doing everything you had to do to become a Canadian citizen by the book, correct? Yes, that's what I did, because I like to respect the rules. I think they are there to give us a better understanding and framework of life. Yeah. Camilo, did you find it to be in uh, a difficult process, an onerous process, something that, that uh, took, you know, a lot of your time? And, and, and uh, did you ever say to yourself, maybe I should, should have chosen what other people choose, and that is to bend the rules and enter Canada illegally? No, actually no. Probably because uh, I understood through patience and hard work it could be achieved, and I'm patient. Yeah. Canadian citizen. You, you, you brought your fiancé here at the time, and she also became a Canadian citizen. And you guys were out for dinner. You told me the story. You were out for dinner in a restaurant in Montreal, old Montreal, one night. And you heard people speaking Spanish. And if I recall correctly, the dialect was the same dialect that... Uh, you would have spoken Spanish dialect that you would have spoken in your area of Mexico. So you realize these are people from the same part of Mexico that you're from. And you have a conversation with them. And what did they tell you? What did they tell you about what they were doing in Canada? Well, it's, it's really funny because the first question, question they popped was, uh, are you a Canadian citizen? When I replied, yes, they say, well, how do you do it? I explained them. I I hire a lawyer, I present all the paperwork, I waited, uh, I came back to Mexico to pass some tests, and eventually I got my residence, and after three years of working hard, paying taxes, uh, I present my exam, uh, I pass it, and swear the oath, and I became a Canadian citizen. And the reply was, that sounds like too much of a hassle. They actually told me they came here on their honeymoon. And I said, well, that's very nice. So how did you pay a package or how do you organize it? And they say, no, a friend of us told us in Mexico how to came to Canada, apply for refugee status, and stay literally milking the government for six months, and then we come back to Mexico. After six months honeymoon paid by the taxes of people like me. 
who work hard every day. So they took advantage of every opportunity that Canada afforded people who need refugee status, who are legitimate refugees. They weren't. They needed, they wanted to go on a honeymoon, and they found out that Canada will accept refugee applications, and while your case is being investigated, you get support from the government. You get medical support, you get financial support, and you have the right to be in Canada. So they took advantage of that. Yeah, and, yeah I, I find it pretty shocking. Really, really shocking because I, I have met cynic people, but these people didn't didn't sound like they had any remorse. They find it pretty okay. That was shocking. You also told me, and I'm going to come to back come back to this couple in a second. You also told me about a website that I, you told me I believe that it's not up any longer, but it had been up and it was aimed at people in Central and South America, and it was about entering Canada. Share with my listeners what that was about, please. Uh, well, uh, it's not only a website. The thing is, I'm a very good friend with my immigration lawyer. To the point, we're still friends uh, now. We sometimes have dinner together. Two weeks ago, we had a very nice dinner in her backyard. And sometimes she shares information with me. And once she showed me this website where they have information about specifically Montreal and Toronto, what kind of stories they should use to apply for refugee status and get accepted. What was more shocking to me was not just the richness of the detail, but they also have information about what churches they will offer them clothes, food. And Montreal is very generous in that sense. It has a lot of organizations that will help refugees. So once she even showed me a photocopy of a paper, a person who applied for refugee status left on all the papers this person presented at the airport to the immigration officers, and this paper was not supposed to be on the dossier my lawyer got. But for some reason, it got in the hands of the government. Maybe someone didn't read Spanish, because if they had read Spanish, they would have realized this paper has a list of the churches where to get clothes, the organizations where to get food, uh, all the little tricks they could use to milk more the generosity of this country. And that really enraged me because I don't have the heart to do that. Yeah, you did everything the way you're supposed to do it. And you pay taxes and you contribute. And your intent is to contribute. When it comes to refugees, you want to contribute, as we all do, to people who really require refugee assistance, who are legitimate refugees, and who need the help. But the couple that you met in uh, in Old Montreal at the restaurant, and clearly this website, uh, whether or not it's directly aimed at people, and the suggestion is that they break the law and enter Canada and fraudulently abuse the system, um, it, it still delivers that message and that option to people who might say, yeah, we'll do that for a little while. And what I'm thinking, Camillo, is with that couple, when at the end of their six months in Canada, when they've milked the system dry... They return to Mexico, and in Ottawa, they say, oh, another successful case. Uh, let's close the file. They've gone home, so we've handled this properly. 
Meanwhile, Canada has just been defrauded. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Canada is viewed as a bit of a soft touch internationally as far as the refugee system is concerned. Our policies are concerned. That's not new news. That's been the case for some period of time. What you're hearing from Camillo in Montreal is a story of one couple. Just He just met them by accident and heard how they were defrauding Canada over six months as they were honeymooning in this country from Mexico. Camillo, what are you hearing from Mexico now, people in Mexico about any level of attraction of coming to Canada. We're hearing more and more about people from uh, Central America, maybe South America, looking to Canada as opposed to the United States because of their concerns about the uh, the Trump administration. We also know that people, some 1,860, have crossed the border illegally between uh, border crossings, official border crossings, are now in, now in the country, and their stories are going to be heard by the Immigration Review Board. But what are people saying to you in Mexico about any attraction or any sense of wanting to come to Canada? Well, honestly, I must say I've been hearing more about the Mexicans living in the States coming here, which is pretty worrisome because if, if you check the stats, or at least the stats that uh, Radio Canada is using on their newscasts, apparently since January, the number of people crossing the border illegally is increasing every month at the tune of 150% per month. And that includes uh, Ontario and Quebec border. Now, on the Facebook groups of Mexicans in Montreal, there are a lot of Mexicans living in the States who ask, how do they come here? What do they should do to apply for refugee status if there's a way to get refugee status just because they're living in the States illegally, and now Trump is coming after them. And believe me, everyone here, or at least my friends, are telling them, look, Canada is not USA. And if you come here, you're going to have a very difficult time. People are not going to hire you just like they hire you in the States. The government is not going to support you because you come from the state. They need to validate your entrance, and that's in your country, not in the state. So you have to apply for refugee status at the Canadian embassy in your country. You cannot just cross the border. You're going to have a super hard time. Yeah, unless they do it and then are apprehended by the RCMP and are taken to uh, Immigration Canada, Citizenship and Immigration Canada, and then the process of evaluating their claim uh, carries on. In about a minute and a half we have left, Cabello, what, uh, what should Canada do to stop or slow down the fraudulent abuse of the uh, refugee system? What would you want to see done? Well, I think the real measures to find a solution are pretty expensive and will be controversial. Because... It will need a change in the procedures. It will need a change where probably it will be harder. And I'm pretty sure that's not going to be popular because, yes, Canada is a great, generous country. 
and I'm proud of that. However, it breaks my heart to see how people abuse it. And it enrages me is fellow countrymen from Mexico because I'm born there. I'm not so identified now with Mexico because I've been living here for 15 years and I love Canada. If they ask me what nationality you prefer, well, I would say it's been like 12 years I don't renew my Mexican passport, so I already made the choice a long time ago. Yeah. So you're a proud Canadian and it's time to toughen things up or at least protect the border and then make the refugee reality available to the people who genuinely require it, not people who find out that the country's refugee system can be abused and then abuse it. Camilla, we're going to stay in touch. I'm not going to let this many years go by before I talk to you again. Well, thank you for calling me, and it's a pleasure. Anytime you need me, I'm ready to help. Okay, we'll talk again. There's Camillo in uh, Montreal, and I just wanted you to hear his story. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Dr. Christian Luprecht is uh, with us, professor of political science at the Royal Military College and Queen's University, international expert on military and defense issues, the author of nine books, and understands what's going on in the world better than better than most. Christian, uh, thanks for taking time on a Sunday. French citizens today began voting for their new president. Um, might it be Marine Le Pen? Who, who do you like? Who do you think is going to win this? Well, look, I think this is unlike any election that the Fifth Republic has had since 1958. Uh, and the results or the preliminary results show this, that two outsiders with really very little experience uh, Mélenchon of, uh, on, on the one hand and Macron uh, together are probably going to come in at about the same percentage of votes as sort of the insiders in, in Fillon and uh, uh, Marine Le Pen. Um, and the fact that sort of the two people who propose extremist, fairly extreme solution, political solutions, Marine Le Pen and Mélenchon, again, are going to probably bring in together about as many votes as people who support a, who support more centrist or more conventional solutions. As say, Fillon and uh, and Macron, I think, shows that this is a very deeply divided country and uh, with with very different visions of what it's going to take for the country to move forward. And so, so, even even though today is the first voting for the president, uh, could what happens between today and then the runoff, the second round of voting, assume there's going to be a second round, could what happens between those two times still change the outcome of the of the of the runoff dramatically? Sure, I think so. Nothing's certain here in the sense that people. So Mélenchon uh, seems to be doing much better than people had expected. He's very much to the left, right? Uh, correct. correct. So he has fairly, uh, shall we say, extreme solutions to the left. And one of the interesting hypotheses is to what extent will people who supported Mélenchon in the second round be prepared to support Marine Le Pen, since she's the one who would be closest in terms of fairly radical uh, uh, change and and solutions in quotation marks to the challenges that France is facing. So. Uh, this is certainly not uh, as done a deal for um, uh, Macron should he move on to the second round as uh, many people uh, think. 
Um, it's so, going to be, yeah. let, let me ask you this. How has the influx of migrants, coupled with the major terror attacks in Paris and Nice, as well as other terror attacks elsewhere in France, how has that affected the French voter? Are they prepared to set aside their usual voting habits, and this is what we were getting at, I guess, in the interest of voting for the person who promises the greatest security for France? Is that the mindset of the French citizen now? So that's not the shift, of course, that we've seen in the polling and in the results. Uh, this is really, I mean, until Friday, if you want, uh, uh, this election was really about uh, a scatter plot of issues without any particular focus. And then all of a sudden, uh, national security and terrorism became the singular focal point. And so people figured that this would shore up the conventional candidates and the people who are tougher on uh, on security and work probably to the detriment of, uh, of Macron. And that's not what we see here. And it's also what followed on the precedent of what we had in 2012. If you think back to 2012, we had the attack on the Jewish school in Toulouse uh, just shortly before the election. People figured that that was going to shore up Sarkozy. Uh, and in the end, that's not the outcome that we saw. So it seems that while the security issue and immigration issues are heavily mediatized, uh, I think uh, the people who position themselves as I'm the best leader for France and to move France ahead continue to resonate strongly with the voter and in a country that uh, of, of Sartre and sort of the, the relatively negativity and criticism that France is famous for, someone like Macron who's campaigning on this very okay. positive hope sort of campaign, which is completely unusual for French politics. Okay, Christian, we have, the, we have the French election taking place. That's underway. We have a British election taking place in a few weeks' time that uh, Prime Minister May just called so that she feels she can have the kind of support and and power base to drive through Brexit. And there's the German election coming up in a matter of months. Do you foresee a sea change in how those three countries are governed and therefore a sea change in the European Union or, or not so likely? So I want to be cautious in the sense that pollsters have, of course, not done a particularly great job in recent elections at no, they haven't. outcome correctly. So anything can happen here. But I think given the disarray that the opposition is in in the, in the UK, I think there's people expect that, uh, that Theresa May will win. But look at how she's positioning herself, not as the Brexit uh, premier, but rather as the person who's best able to govern the United Kingdom. And in Germany, given the way the electoral system is set up, I think it is a foregone conclusion that the grand coalition between the conservatives and the socialists, uh, the social democrats, will continue to prevail, uh, in particular given the fairly systematic way in which uh, Chancellor Merkel has positioned herself as a, as a quasi-social democrat with many of the policies that she pursues that has made it very difficult for parties on the left. Okay, in the 30 seconds in the 30 seconds we have left, Christian, what does your gut tell you? I shouldn't be asking a political scientist what his gut tells him, but what does your gut tell you? Uh, I think we're going to get a, a strong uh, alignment, I think, between France and Germany going forward in favor of the European Union uh, and a good, solid collaboration with the United Kingdom because everybody, I think, in the end knows they're better off together. And I think that's ultimately also what the voters understand, that even though the UK will leave the European Union, there will continue to be a strong association. Um, and so I think we will 
uh, much, I think, will return to reasonable normalcy okay. uh, going forward, and that will also be, uh, I think, in, in, in work in Canada's favor, given what's going on south I, of the border. I appreciate you taking time on a beautiful Sunday afternoon to talk to us. It's been my pleasure, Roy. Thanks, Christian. All the best to you, Dr. Christian Luprecht from the uh, Royal Military College and from uh, Queen's University, Professor of Political Science, International Expert on Military and Defense Issues. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Two people per day die from opioid overdoses in Ontario. That was the headline. So again, the opioid crisis focuses only, at least as far as the media reports are concerned, only on the abuse of opioids, with no word about patients who do not abuse their opioid medications and without which chronic pain patients would be lost potentially to suicide because of their pain. Uh, we already know that some of the um, some of the people who some of the patients have been either totally cut off as far as their opioids are concerned, or they've been significantly reduced. And I've received some emails which I've shared with you, and we've talked to pain patients on this program. We've also spoken with Dr. Fiona Campbell anesthesiologist and co-director of Sick Kids Pain Center at Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto. She's also the president-elect of the Canadian Pain Society. And Dr. Campbell is back with us uh, on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. Campbell, thank you. Thank you very much for the time. Uh, another story about opioid abuse deaths, two per day in Ontario. That's very unfortunate. But who is ending their own lives because of opioid medication? Is it chronic pain patients who are responsibly taking their prescribed opioids, or is it people who voluntarily engage in drug abuse without an attending chronic pain issue? Well, good afternoon, uh, good afternoon, Roy. Thank you very much for having me on again. Um, it's a it's a very complicated issue. Uh, I would. The recent publication that came out from a very highly regarded group of scientists uh, in Toronto, led by um, Tara Gomes, um, has identified that there are two opioid-related deaths per day. So the extent to which this has a relationship with people taking opioids for chronic pain uh, or people who are taking illicit opioids to get high uh, is complicated. But I would say um, for the purposes of um, this particular statistics, it's uh, people who are unfortunately taking opioids uh, to get high and um, uh, getting alarmingly high concentrations, uh, usually of a medication called fentanyl and sometimes heroin uh, as well and so um, yes it's generally speaking not people who are taking opioids for chronic pain it seems to me that in the general discussion and the concerns and the alarms about opioid abuse the patient is very rarely talked about the chronic care patient or chronic pain patient is rarely talked about, and that's a, a patient quotient that is only increasing as the population ages, and certainly they're significantly important in the debate about uh, about opioid use. Would you, first of all, is that a fair observation, and what do opioids do when they're taken properly? How do opioids positively affect the pain patient who's prescribed the opioids? Well, um, you've, you mentioned a few points there. Um, uh, the actual statistic for the proportion of um, 
the population who experiences or suffers with chronic pain is about 25%. So uh, we have a very high proportion of people who experience chronic pain in, in some way, shape, or, or form. And about 5% of this group have very severe chronic pain to the extent that it has huge impact on their uh, ability to function, uh, their health-related quality of life. And it's for, those, it's for this group of patients that I think that opioids should not be a first-line treatment of medication, uh, but they should certainly be in the armamentarium of, provi of providers uh, to be able to prescribe should they be so needed when other more conservative lines of treatment have failed. And when taken properly... What does an opioid do to break the pain cycle or interrupt the pain cycle or leave the pain reality for the, for the patient who requires the, that medication? Yeah, so opioids are um, a group of medications that work on an opioid receptor in our central nervous system. And um, they work by uh, reducing uh, activity and um, uh, increasing uh, analgesia in the body. So it has a direct effect on our pain receptors in the body to uh, dial down pain. So we have one out of four people in this country living with chronic pain one, to a le one level or another. And, and for those, I remember our conversation, our first conversation, we talked about um, the impact of significant chronic pain on a person who's not able to alleviate it or not able to interrupt it in any way. And uh, that was after uh, some stories had surfaced about suicides from, by pain patients. And, and you, if I remember correctly, you defined four stages that, um, that may be in play when a pain patient takes his or her own life when they can't access their opioid medication. One is the pain, second is social isolation, third is depression, and fourth is suicide. How concerned should we be about suicide being a reality for people who may not have access to opioids as they've had by prescription for a significant period of time or may have a significantly reduced uh, milligram access to uh, to opioids. Is this is there another crisis waiting to happen? Uh, well, there is no doubt. There have been reports of suicides from patients who have had their opioids either reduced abruptly or cut off, and for whom they are no longer available. And there are patients uh, who people who we know are suffering with severe chronic pain who talk about this and think about this um, in a uh, in a uh, fairly frequent uh, fairly frequently. I think the um, four stages that you speak of, it's not really a linear thing. The number of patients who commit suicide from uh, chronic pain um, is low. Uh, it is double uh, the rate in the general population. Um, but there is no doubt that this is a bit of a spanner in the works when they can no longer have access to opioids uh, um, for some patients for whom they have been quite helpful in maintaining um, a reasonable um, quality of life. Dr. Campbell, I'm going back to that number of 25% of Canadians dealing with chronic pain. 
to a greater or lesser degree. That's that's a that is a big big number. If there were um, a disease discovered today that is affecting 25% of Canadians and is affecting 25% of Canadians in a very negative manner, that would be a that would be a, an alarm bell situation, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. Now, uh, 25% of people who um, experience chronic pain, they're not all in this sort of um, deeply disabled um, uh, category. It's 5% of those 25%. So it's a, a, a small proportion of those with chronic pain who end up uh, in this sort of vicious cycle of being uh, unable to work, exercise, um, see friends and colleagues, become socially isolated, perhaps depressed and, and entertain uh, suicide. So it's not 25% of the population who are in oh, that stage. It's 5%. Um, Five percent of that. Of the 25%. Okay. uh, It's it's a clear issue. It's a clear problem when you have two people per day in the province of Ontario dying of opioid-related issues. And we've seen the numbers um, in Canada nationally or projected numbers uh, in the United States. I've seen some of of that as well. Um, Where does the focus have to be on opioids going forward? And where is the focus? What, what's the objective of governments and the medical profession? And not, they're not necessarily the same, are they? No, but we are working together. Um, certainly, Jane Philpott, the Federal Minister of Health, is really wanting um, people to pull together and um, deal with this in a comprehensive way. So I think you just asked what what's the getting at what what needs to be done in sort of a, a solution. Right. Uh, well, there isn't really a simple solution. I mean, we certainly um, need to do a... So it's going to be multifaceted. Uh, we need to do a better job of preventing acute, severe pain, so pain that's happened in the short term. We need to do a better job of preventing that acute pain from becoming chronic. Uh, We then, once we have established chronic pain, uh, have to um, take measures to be able to um, provide reasonable treatments for chronic pain. So instead of just writing a prescription for opioids, we need access to other treatments such as physiotherapy, uh, psychotherapy, which currently people have to pay for, which is a massive barrier to getting those kinds of treatments that can prevent acute pain from becoming chronic. Um, We need to have um, good treatments for people who then do uh, become addicted uh, and then we to, to to address the addiction problem, we need safe injection sites so that um, naloxone is available um, uh, and people aren't getting um, into uh, trouble with um, the acute results of injecting and getting an overdose that way. Um, we need better education for healthcare providers. We know that vets get five times as much dedicated pain education as medical students do. We need to make um, the community more aware of chronic pain as an important uh, public health issue and patients suffering from chronic pain need to be treated compassionately and taken seriously. We need more research. You know, it's really um, uh, not gonna take uh, just one 
thing to make this better. Uh, we need to be healthier so we don't get injured. Um, we need to wear seatbelts so we don't get catastrophic injuries. Uh, it, it's really uh, it, it, it's really such a huge phenomenon that has so many parts that can be addressed. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML. Dr. Fiona Campbell, anesthesiologist, co-director of the Sick Kids Pain Center at Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, president-elect of the Canadian Pain Society. We're talking about opioid medications and uh, chronic pain sufferers in Canada and where the two meet and when the two have to diverge. Uh, Dr. Campbell, talk to us, please, about children dealing with chronic pain. Uh, how is that approached? And are there different options for children as, than, than for adults, or is it just an issue of dosage? Uh, well, this is the domain in which I um, find myself have the privilege of working now in the chronic pain program at uh, Sick Kids. Um, the interestingly, about the same proportion of children and teens have uh, chronic pain as do adults, so 20 to 25 percent, of whom again it's about five percent have severe impact on their health-related quality of life. They, um, the kinds of conditions they have are pain related to diseases such as severe rheumatoid arthritis, sickle cell disease, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. They get chronic pain from uh, cancer, both from tumors themselves, but also the byproduct of its treatment. Um, kids end up with very severe chronic pain um, following major um, motor vehicle accidents and uh, pain after any kind of surgery, uh, really. And they have the same sort of impact in the sense that they have not only the physical and psychological suffering associated with the pain, but they're out of school, not participating in their uh, hobbies and sports, they're not seeing their friends, they're becoming socially isolated, and we see a relatively high um, uh, uh, proportion of the kids with anxiety and depression, uh, and uh, it also doubles the risk of suicide in the um, pediatric population as well. And uh, so the treatment um, that you've asked about, it's uh, our program at Sick Kids is a multi or interdisciplinary treatment uh, model where we have uh, physicians such as myself, um, physiotherapists, psychologists, social workers, advanced practice nurse specialists, um, all sitting at the table when the children and the families come in for their appointment so that they really get a good comprehensive assessment of their pain and, and its impact. In terms of treatment, um, we have uh, similar kinds of treatments, although, uh, as you say, the dose may be lower of medication, um, but still, uh, it's not just about the drugs, um, and it's certainly not just about the opioids, but we would use non-opioid medication treatment. We, it's really important to get um, a functional sort of physical rehabilitation going, so get kids moving again so that they can uh, claim their lives back, um, get them uh, seen by psychologists so that their mental health impact is reduced and they can learn to live life fully despite the pain. 
And sometimes for kids, we do use opioids, although we're very, very careful um, because of some of the risks associated with uh, opioids themselves. Um, But yeah, that's the best model of care is to have access to a, a comprehensive team that can treat the whole patient with a whole variety of uh, treatment in their toolbox. Very complicated issue. We, we have about a minute left. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue of funding for alternative pain treatments, you mentioned the physiotherapy is not covered, and that's an issue with, with patients. Is this something that has to be uh, significantly addressed, the funding of alternative pain treatments? Yes, I mean, we say alternative, you mean alternative to opioids. Right, yes, exactly. Sort of uh, alternative treatment, yeah. in quotes. Um, but yes, I, I think it's absolutely critical that we have access to um, uh, treatment that uh, will reduce the reliance on opioids. And there are g- many groups across the country working on this, both to identify, really pull together the evidence, uh, but also uh, advocating for okay. this. And I know that uh, uh, Ontario, um, for sure, this is something that is at least on the cards. And right. up for Dr. Campbell, I, I apologize. I have to stop you because the satellite's going to get us this time. Okay. I, I th- thank you so much for the time and thanks for the information. So very important. Thank you again. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. The Conservative Party of Canada is getting close to the day they're going to elect the new leader of the party who will lead the Conservative Party of Canada into the 2019 election campaign, no doubt against Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, and whoever the New Democrats decide will lead them. There'll be other candidates, and there'll be the Green Party, of course, but generally, with due respect to everybody who gets into the political arena, it is normally considered to be a contest between the Conservatives, the Liberals, and the New Democrats, and may it end that way. That's just the way I feel. Andrew Shear is a member of Parliament from Saskatchewan. For th- 35 years of age, he was elected the uh, Speaker of Canada's Parliament, the youngest Speaker ever. And he is, uh, from what I've been reading and hearing, increasingly in a favorable position as far as the leadership contest is concerned. Mr. Shear, good to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Great to chat with you as well. How do you assess your, uh, your, your situation? We yesterday spoke with Maxime Bernier. Last week, we spoke with Kevin O'Leary. Uh, they're generally considered to be the front runners, but you're in a, you're, you're positioned quite well, are you not? I, I, I am, and you know, th- there's a few ways that you can you can kind of try to determine how you're doing. One of them is uh, caucus endorsements. I've I've got the most amount of MPs and senators endorsing my campaign, and that means I've got people out in each riding selling selling memberships and spreading the good word and and hoping to get the vote out for me. So that's that's a good sign. Uh, fundraising is, is very strong. We, we came in third in, in uh, our first quarter, in, in the last quarter of 2016, and we, we had an extremely good uh, first quarter of 2017. And then our own internal numbers. And so I'm very confident. I believe that people like Kevin O'Leary and Maxime uh, do have a bit of a, a polarizing effect. And as many people that that, that, that do support them, there are many that, that are a little bit worried about some of their positions, and, and so I don't know that they'll be able to grow on subsequent ballots the same way that, that I will be able to. Well, let me go through a, a number of issues with you, and we can get a response from you on, on how you see them and what, would you, what you would do about them. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, an issue that we've talked about a great deal is the carbon tax that Mr. Trudeau insists is going to be the Canadian reality for the decades to come and insists it's going to be uh, what, what it is what Canada needs, says Mr. Trudeau. Meanwhile, in the United States, no carbon tax. And uh, just, just a cursory review of what happens in economics would suggest that if the United States has no carbon tax, and we do, that's not good for Canada or Canada's economy. It's going to be terrible for Canada's economy. I was in Markham, and I met with uh, a gentleman who owns a, a parts plant that provides uh, plastic moldings to the auto industry. He's already shut down uh, one shift a week. He's only operating four days a week just because of the hydro costs that he's paying. And, you know, with a, with a, with a carbon tax added, he could set up shop uh, on the other side of the border, bring all the, take all those jobs with him, and the emissions would still be going into the atmosphere. Just the jobs would be leaving Canada. So it's going to be economic suicide to impose a carbon tax when our largest trading partner is going in the opposite direction, lowering taxes, lowering regulatory costs. So I have made it very clear that if I am prime minister in 2019, my first act, my first bill introduced in the House of Commons will be to repeal the carbon tax. How do you see the, uh, the, the global warming, the climate change issue? Where are you on that? Well, look, I think it's uh, I, I, I think it's always a good idea to, to reduce emissions. I think regardless of what it is we're putting into the rivers and oceans and, and atmosphere, you know, we should always be good stewards of that and, and try to reduce the impact we have. But I don't think that we we got a very good deal when Trudeau signed on to uh, uh, to the Paris targets. There's a lot of countries that have special exemptions and longer timetables and are able to continue to increase their emissions. And we didn't fight for any uh, of the credit that, that we should have. You know, agriculture, for example, in Canada has significantly reduced its, its emissions, moving to zero till. We've got huge carbon sinks all over the the, the country. My plan would be to uh, offer incentives to large emitters to reduce their emissions, kind of use the, the carrot instead of the, the stick of a carbon tax. And I also want to help out consumers and, and homeowners. I would go beyond just repealing the carbon tax, and I would you know, bring in what I call the exact opposite of a carbon tax, and I would remove the GST and HST off of utilities like <clears throat> like hydro and home heating. Uh, yeah, for some politicians, the answer to any problem is to either increase taxes or introduce new ones. But let's talk about uh, what has happened with, uh, with home energy. It's become increasingly expensive. Province of Ontario has been a disaster because of the wind government. You're addressing the issue of tax savings on home energy. How's that work? Well, it, you know, there are a lot of things that GST is not charged on. So uh, they're usually labeled essentials by CRA, and, and so the, the GST does not apply. For example, most groceries uh, don't have GST added onto them. Uh, medication are just a couple of examples where the government recognizes that these are things that people really can't live without. So, you, you know, you don't tax them like other types of consumables like, you know, uh, movie tickets or or you know, uh, chips and things like that. Uh, I believe that it's certainly in Canada, it's, it's a very easy argument to make that heating your home is an essential, that, that you can't get by without that. Certainly uh, powering your home, you know, having electricity to power your appliances, that, that too is an essential. So I would treat home utilities the exact same way that other essentials are, are treated by making them GST or HST exempt, which would help to lower the cost. Of course, it won't, if for residents of Ontario, it won't undo all the damage that the disastrous Liberal government has done with their with their uh, energy schemes and, and, and what they've done, but it will take some of the sting out anyway. What do you do to a provincial government that says, oh, here, uh, look, Prime Minister Scheer has taken the GST and the HST off the uh, 
off the uh, energy uh, uh, bill. So we'll just we'll just fill that in. We'll just we'll just add that to our uh, our billing. What do you do to those provinces? You know that that is a great question, and that's something that was always frustrating during the the ten years of uh, conservative government. We were lowering taxes every way we could we could think of. We we lowered personal income taxes. We lowered the GST, of course. We lowered corporate taxes. Uh, we found a variety of ways to, to lower the tax burden, and often the Liberals in Ontario, especially, uh, just backfilled that with their own tax increases. So you know we have a lot of these these meetings between the provinces and the, and the prime minister, and then you know there's always a, a big show about it, but. Maybe we need the next one of those to, to to have more substance where you say, look, we're not just going to lower tax points federally so you can raise them provincially. We have a huge problem competing against the United States. We have economic engines in this country like Ontario with governments that are running them into the ground and killing opportunities and having an effect on every province. So people in Alberta and Saskatchewan and B.C. suffer when uh, Ontario makes terrible decisions. So we need to have a, uh, we need to have a, a frank conversation with, with, with governments. I respect the, pro- the Constitution. I respect the separation of powers. But, you know, looking at tools to make sure that provincial governments aren't rewarded uh, for terrible decisions, uh, ultimately it's in the hands of the Ontario electorate. Hopefully they, they make the right decision in, in, in the next provincial election. But it is something that I'm very concerned about. What does Prime Minister Scheer do about what's going on at the border? If you were the Prime Minister today and you had all the numbers that uh, most of us have now through releases from the RCMP uh, and you have all the information that Justin Trudeau has and the Prime Minister has been spectacular in his lack of initiative, uh, uh, what would you do to address the issue that has so many people in this country concerned? Well, first of all, you're exactly right. that This is not getting the attention it needs from this Liberal government. Uh, I, I always get frustrated by what I call the misplaced compassion uh, from those on the left. You know, they, they put up an image of a, of a family trudging through the snow, crossing into Canada, and they try to play on our heartstrings and say, you know, surely we should have compassion for this person. And I think to myself, yeah, but, you know, these people are coming from a safe country. They're, they're coming from North Dakota and Vermont and Maine. I've been to all those places. There's no threat of persecution. They don't have to flee into Canada. And while they do that, there's no compassion for people legitimately waiting their turn in refugee camps all over the world who would face real persecution if they left the camps in, in Africa or the, the Middle East. And now more and more reports are showing that many of these people have criminal records, they're bringing in illegal firearms. So we need to, we need to have a strong response. What I would do is, is on, a, on a couple different levels. First and foremost, we need more resources to patrol the border. We need to give more uh, you know, personnel looking at where these routes are and, and making sure that they're there to catch them. But most importantly, what we need is a fast-track system to remove them. Once they set foot in Canada, they're entitled to all the same charter protections and, and appeals. So, you know, I think the, the simplest way to do it, is instead of opening up the Constitution or, or, you know, getting very complicated with things, we need to establish a parallel fast-track system to very quickly process these cases uh, hear their appeals, and then send them back. If, if these are not legitimate refugees. They're coming from a safe country, right. and, and they have an obligation to make those claims in the first safe country they land in. So that's the United States, and we just need to have a, a very quick system. I'm talking you know, a matter of days. So what the liberals are doing is they're detaining them, processing them, fingerprinting them, you know, to char- charging them, and then many of them get let, let them get go. Let out. And then they disappear into our big cities and... and more and more, we're hearing that you know they're impossible to track down by the time their court date comes along. So that's I why we. That, 
I'm sorry, but that's why we have 44,000 people who've gone missing without a trace. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and the government's not doing anything about it. Some of this will require extra resources, you know, a, a special a judicial process to deal with it. But the alternative is untenable. The, the alternative is unacceptable to Canadians. We cannot stand by while people with criminal records and, and tra- you know, involved in human trafficking just disappear into our large cities. That's not, that's not right. It's not fair. And there's no compassion to law-abiding Canadians who are now faced with this threat in their own communities. Yeah. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Mr. Scheer, Donald Trump, whether the left likes it or not, is the president of the United States. Clearly, they don't like it because they have a march every day. But the president of the United States has expressed and expressed uh, on Thursday or Friday his dissatisfaction with Canada's dairy industry. He believes that uh, Wisconsin farmers are at a disadvantage because of supply management. Softwood lumber, he brought that in, said, I don't really want to talk about it, but I will. Sounds like Donald Trump. Softwood lumber is an issue. Steel is an issue for him. And energy is an issue. First of all, how do you deal with those issues? And how do you deal with the president of the United States if you become prime minister? Well, with I'm that very president. alarmed by, uh, by Donald Trump's language. I also point out the intense hypocrisy of uh, complaining about what he perceives as protectionism in Canada the same day that he's signing executive orders uh, implementing protectionism in his own country. You know, if if, if he were to say, I want Canada to get rid of supply management because I'm a free trader and I believe in, you know, philosophically I'm opposed to anything that, that, that inhibits trade in any industry, that would be one thing. But he is uh, not a friend of of free trade. He blames uh, all kinds of problems that are caused by uh, other things at the, at the, at the feet of uh, free trade. So we have a lot of work to do. First of all, I, I disagree with my, my, my opponent, Maxime, who is offering up parts of Canada's uh, economy and industry as kind of a sacrificial lamb to appease Donald Trump. I, I, I believe that's a terrible path to go down because I, I, I think that would be insatiable because anything that he perceives as, as being competitive against American producers, uh, he will take measures against. So uh, I don't think we'd be any further ahead if we did that. What we need to do is we need to work very hard. We need to send trade officials and foreign affairs officials and industry officials all across the United States and find those American employers who have two, three, four hundred jobs at their factories, at their plants and their businesses, thanks to the Canadian markets, thanks to our exports or uh, or our imports, and get them to come to Washington to put pressure on Congress and the administration. I don't think we can argue with Donald Trump. Uh, I don't think we can appeal to his altruism or his philosophical commitment to good economic practices. I think he understands jobs. I think he understands kind of a populist streak of the American people who who want to see those factories come back and, and those plants come back. So I think we show him business owners who do have factories and plants and businesses thanks to trade with Canada. And we get them to tell the story, not about how it would be good for Canada, but yeah, how it will be good for Americans who are employed in, in those in those businesses. And that's the thing about free trade is, is everybody benefits. Uh, we, we have to protect NAFTA. We have to fight to keep it, uh, to keep that border open. Otherwise, if we go down this route of, of implementing protectionist measures, it's going to hurt both our countries. What's your fallback position if the president of the United States were to say, that's fine, Prime Minister, I don't care? Well, I'm not, I'm not prepared to, <laughs> to, to concede. I, I think one thing that taught us in the in the global recession was that we do need to diversify our trading interests. And, uh, we, you know, we had a lot of eggs in one basket in the United States. And whether it's because of a protectionist 
president or because of an economic downturn, we, we see that there's a lot of risk in Canada. When they go down, we go down with them. So uh, my fallback position would be to aggressively sign other free trade deals. There's a huge opportunity right now with the UK. I was a big proponent of Brexit you know, before the vote. Uh, happened uh, last summer. I, I I think it should be a priority to sign a free trade deal with Canada, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. There's a natural uh, relationship there. We have the same rule of law, same language, same legal systems, and, and things like that. So we need to diversify our trade so that when things happen in the U.S., it's not as devastating uh, as it would be right now. So in the two minutes we have left, what's the most important issue for you? I mean, a lot of things have happened just in the last week. What, uh, what do you want our, our listeners to know about Andrew Scheer as Prime Minister of Canada? What, what, what do we need to know? What, where, where's your focus immediately? Well, immediately is, is the leadership race. And so right now, you know, I have a special message to members of the Conservative Party, and that is that I can keep our party united. Uh, it's, it's something we shouldn't take for granted. Conservative movements in Canada often splinter apart and lose many elections and then get back together. I don't want to see that happening now, and I think there are some candidates who don't appreciate the balance that you have to find to keep our, our caucus and our movement united. And I can articulate a positive message about what conservative policies do to help improve the quality of lives uh, for Canadians. So my, my pitch to, to Conservative Party members is with me. You get a united party that can reach a broader audience of Canadians while staying true to our conservative policies and philosophies. And I can make the case in the next two years leading up to 2019 that it's conservative policies that create prosperity, lift people out of poverty, improve the quality of life, secure our borders, implement an immigration system that puts Canada's needs first, and a justice system that puts the rights of law-abiding Canadians and victims ahead of repeat dangerous criminals. Okay, in about 30 seconds we have left. You disagreed uh, with M103. I did too. Many other Canadians did. That make you an Islamophobe? Well, you know, the, one of the problems with that motion is that Islamophobia was not defined. Not defined. And to some, it means, uh, you know, unjust discrimination. You know, firing someone because they're Muslim or kicking them out of out of an apartment. I think both you and I would agree that that's not right and 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 shouldn't be allowed. However, if it's legitimate criticism about what many radical Islamist uh, imams and others uh, preach. Then I want to protect that ability. I want to. Uh, I, I want to protect your ability to say, "Hey, wait a minute. You know, people who believe that that women are property uh, aren't right and shouldn't. You know, try to convince others of that, or that uh, you know, practices like female genital mutilation are 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 not right and shouldn't happen in Canada. That doesn't make you an Islamophobe. Right. That makes you someone who has uh, has you know common values as, as the vast majority of Canadians. Mr. Shearer, I thank you for the time. I like what I've heard from you and. Uh Good luck going forward. It's going to be very interesting as it gets closer and closer to the uh, to the date for the uh, for the vote. And I, I would imagine if it goes to the third or second or third ballot, you're going to have a good shot at it. So, hope we talk again before then. And thanks again for the time today. My pleasure. Always great to chat with you. Bye bye, Andrew Shear. AndrewShear.com is his website. Running for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. The Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML.